still. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to New Life Community Church. Yeah, my name's Mark. I'm married to the wonderful Deb, and I'm part of the eldership team that oversees NLCC. Uh, she meets in one church, but in several locations. Now, maybe you've recently joined the church. Maybe you're just visiting. Or perhaps you're just listening to a recording. And so you might like to know that you join us as we're just getting into a series of messages from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now, Paul wrote this letter in about AD 55 from Ephesus. And it's clear in his writing that he had a deep affection and a concern for the church in Corinth. And that's understandable. He spent about a year and a half there helping to establish a thriving and a pretty cosmopolitan church. And by cosmopolitan, I mean it was mainly made up of Gentiles, that is, anyone who's not Jewish, but it did include some Jews. It was made up of all kinds of people, including Jewish refugees and apparently some ex-criminals. In other words, it was a bit of a melting pot. Now, Paul writes this letter partly for at least a couple of reasons. Now, partly in response to a letter that he himself had received from the church, and that's mentioned in, in chapter 7. And partly he writes it in response to a, re a report that has come to Paul. And in this report, Paul learned that some of the Corinthian believers were, were behaving in a way that was a little bit disturbing, and also that there were growing divisions in the church. And it appears that Paul writes this letter, at least in part, to bring some correction regarding the actions and the attitudes of these believers. Now, although this letter was written nearly 2,000 years ago, the church today is still faced with many of the same issues. And that being the case, God has just as much to say to us through his words given through Paul as he did to Paul's contemporaries. Now, we'll open up our Bibles in a, in a minute or two, but before, I do, before we do that, let me ask you a question. Have you heard of the Arnots? Now, some of you who've been around the charismatic church for a little while, you might be thinking that I mean John and Carol Arnott, who founded the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church, and that was the birthplace of the Toronto Blessing. But that's not the Arnots that I'm referring to. Deb and I, we love the Arnots because we count ourselves amongst their number. Although, as old as I'm beginning to look, clearly I wasn't around at the time that Paul wrote this letter. I'm beginning to look like it, but I wasn't. So we, we really love the Arnots. We think we're counted amongst them, and there is a good chance that some of you might feel that way too. So let's open our Bible, shall we? If you've got one with you, can I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to begin today at verse 17, and I'm reading from the New International Version. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? 
Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this is life and truth to us. Lord, help me to so speak and help us to have ears and to hear and hearts and minds to understand and apply what you want to say to your children this morning. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen. Amen. So the passage that we have just read follows on from Paul's response regarding the reports that he's heard regarding divisions or different factions appearing in the Corinthian church. And it's part of a larger argument. And the foundation of that argument is basically that there is only one route to salvation and that is through Jesus Christ. Paul's going to develop this argument further in chapter 3 where he demonstrates that these guys he's mentioned, Peter, also called Cephas or Cephas, and Apollos, these guys are, like Paul himself, simply instruments in the hand of God. So, I guess the first thing that I want us to notice from these verses that we've read is the centrality of the gospel. In verse 17, Paul reminds his listeners that he wasn't sent primarily to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he goes on to talk about the message of the cross. What do these verses tell us about the message of the cross? Here's what I see. I see that it has power to save. We can see that in verses 18 and 21. But I see that it can be a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles who do not believe. See that in verse 23. But it's the power and wisdom of God to those that God has called. And I see that in verse 24. So that, that needs a bit of unpacking. So I guess firstly, what do we mean when we say that the gospel or the message of the cross has power to save. Save from what? Now this is absolutely foundational, but it's worth going over and over again. This is just my conviction, but I don't think that we can ever talk 
or even just think about or consider this about too much or too often. See, the point is this. Mankind is inherently sinful. We all sin. There is only one that was completely without sin. And the gospel is his story. Jesus is the only one that never sinned. He was absolutely perfect. And the rest of us, sadly, not so much. Each one of us, we've all thought things, we've all said things, we've all done things that were against God and his ways. And we have, in effect, all acted in rebellion against him. And we preferred our own ways to his, our own desires to his. In short, each one of us has missed the mark. And God, being absolutely holy, can have no part with unholiness. And in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the penalty for the way that we have lived is death. And that, right there, the death that we deserved, that is what we have been saved from. That is what we have been rescued from. Even the very name of our Savior alludes to this, since Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Or to put it another way, the very name Jesus means God to the rescue. If you're here this morning and you believe in and you belong to Jesus Christ, it is because you have been saved through the message of the cross where Jesus paid the penalty that was ours and died the death that was ours. He was buried in the ground. But on the third day, hallelujah, he was raised to eternal life. And we who believe in him have the hope that all who believe in his glorious name will likewise be raised with him. I mean, listen to these amazing words of Paul, this time writing to the church in Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... And don't you just love these buts? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness in Jesus Christ. For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians chapter 2 and the first nine verses. And in those verses, Paul reminds us that we deserved wrath, we deserve to be punished, in other words, for the way that we've lived. But we didn't get what we deserved. Instead, we received grace and mercy. And if you find it hard to distinguish between the two, 
perhaps this will help. I found it certainly helped me anyway. Mercy is when we don't receive what we did, re- did deserve, which is death. Whereas grace is when we receive something that we didn't deserve, which is eternal life. Shall I say that again? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. And this all comes about because Jesus died on a cross on our behalf. This, brothers and sisters, this is the message of the cross. He was crucified in our place. He died in our place. It should have been us on that cross. Each one of us could say, should have been me. Jesus hanging on a cross for our sins and for our salvation. This is the message of the cross. And because Jesus overcame death and was raised to eternal life by the power of God, this message has power to save. Everyone who's in this room has been born again of the Holy Spirit will testify to that. We have been saved and we are being saved. In other words, we are being sanctified We are not yet the finished article, but we are being made daily into the likeness of Christ with the wonderful promise that when we see him, we will be like him. And that's what it means to be in Jesus Christ. We've been made righteous. We've been made holy and set apart for God. And we have been redeemed or purchased by and for him, as we are told in verse 30. So whilst Paul writes that the message of Christ crucified is the power of God to those who are being saved, the question arises then, why does he also write that the same message is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Well, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but the Messiah they got wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. They were looking for a warrior king, Someone like King David of old. But what they got was something very different. They thought he would come in some kind of military power. But this Jesus, he seemed to treasure meekness and humility. And and to the Gentiles, many of whom were Greek, with their clever philosophies and their worldly wisdom and their stories of heroes like Perseus and Hercules... This message made no sense to them. I mean, it must have just seemed daft, I guess. Because it was an offence to their endless search for wisdom and, and knowledge. And in verse 22, Paul tells us that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. Now, I find that really interesting and not a little ironic. I mean, if they were looking for wisdom... I mean, surely the teaching of Jesus has to be some of the most amazing wisdom and teaching that there's ever been. I mean, this is a view not just held by Christians. There's a letter written in 1926 by Mahatma Gandhi to an American elder, and whilst he couldn't just subscribe to everything that he was invited to believe in, nevertheless, Gandhi wrote, I've not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. So if they were looking for wisdom, surely, surely here was wisdom for them. And with regards to signs, again, Jesus, a performer of amazing miracles, 
This is what the historian Josephus said about Jesus around about the end of the first century, that he was a wise man, if it be lawful or reasonable to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. But it's interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't major on the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus, the things that the Jews and Greeks were looking for. What does Paul major on? He preaches Christ crucified. And although it's an offense to the Jews and probably just plain daft to the Gentiles, to those of us who believe, it is the power of salvation. Let's move now to the next thing that I want us to notice from these, from these verses. And I'm going to call that God's grace in election. And verses 24 and 26 tell us that there are those that God has called. And then several times, Paul reminds the believers, in effect, that they have been chosen. Listen to the refrain that echoes right throughout verses 27 and 28. Three times we are told that God chose. God chose the foolish things. God chose the weak things. God chose the lowly things and the despised things. Now, this, this doctrine of election, that's a massive subject. And I don't really have time to go into too much detail today. I would just point you towards Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, and remind us that if we are believers in Christ, it's because we were chosen before the creation of the world and before we had done anything good or bad. And so it has nothing to do with our intellects. It has nothing to do with our accomplishments. And brothers and sisters, that's really good news for us. I mean, I hope you believe that it's good news. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. There we are, right there, the are-nots. Now, in all seriousness... Maybe in your past, some of us here have been told that we are not something. And maybe this has felt like a curse over you. And you, you think, I'm not good enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not clever enough. Not enough. So this is, this is good news for some of us this morning. Jesus died on a cross, not just for our sins, but to proclaim freedom from such curses. If you are in Christ, you are enough. God loves you. He accepts you. In Christ, that's enough for God. And that is liberating. And that's why I love these verses because I am one of the are-nots. Paul encourages us to remember what we were like before we were saved. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So maybe some of his original readers or listeners were wise. Maybe some were influential. Maybe some were of noble birth. Maybe some were, but not many, it seems. So their being chosen had nothing to do 
with being clever or influential or from a good background. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. And wow, what a great leveler that is. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with being wise or clever or eloquent or gifted. It's just that we need to have a right perspective. Otherwise, we could become arrogant. And, and sometimes, perhaps without even realizing it, our attitude can become, well, God's really lucky to have me in his kingdom. I realize lucky and theological doesn't kind of work, but you, you get my meaning. And I have to confess that I am not immune from this trap. And so I need a little perspective to bring a little correction to my attitude and to see, see these things as gifts from a kind, almighty God. Gifts, but not qualifications for entry into his kingdom. And I suspect that I'm not alone in that. Because there's only one qualification necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Each of us must come the same way. We must come through the cross. We must confess that we have sinned. We must turn our backs on the way that we used to live. We must believe and confess that Jesus is both Lord and Saviour and must receive the forgiveness of God for our sins and also receive the gift of eternal life through his Holy Spirit. So in these verses, Paul is reminding us that there's only one way to salvation. We won't get there through earthly wisdom. We can't earn or buy our way in. And any earthly influence we have, that's not going to help us. The kingdom of God is not like a nightclub where we can tip the bouncer to let us in or claim that we know the owner. Because unless we have responded to the invitation to come to the cross and put our faith in the person and the completed works of Jesus, on that great and fearful day, he's just going to say, sorry, I don't know you. There's only one way. And it's the same for all of us, whoever we are. It doesn't matter how rich or clever or eloquent or how well-connected we are. There's only one way. So it's kind of an upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom, isn't it? And Paul reminds us that there's only one way into the kingdom of God in order to bring correction to the kind of tribalism that he's been told is rising up in the church in Corinth. He reminds believers that there's only one way to salvation and that it isn't being by, by being eloquent and it isn't by being clever or connected, which are the kind of attitudes that, let's face it, the world glories in. So what a unifying message this is. And that's its purpose. It's a great leveler because its purpose is to bring unity. Because when we remember that we all come through Christ and we are all one in Christ, and that, that brings unity. We are united in Christ. And that's the point of these verses. And when we remember the centrality of the gospel, it helps, it helps us to have a healthy perspective of the church and of its members. It helps us get along with other believers in other denominations. We might not agree with all their practices, we might not agree with all their interpretations of Scripture. But if they love Jesus, if they love Jesus, if they've come through the cross, and we are one with them, 
And remembering that we are one in Christ helps us not look down on anybody. And the same is true within our own fellowship. We dare not look down on anyone, not even on the kind of people that the world despises, because God chose them. He chose those who are weak to bring shame to those that think they're strong. And he chose the ones that the world sees as foolish to shame those who think they're wise. And why did he do this? Why did God do this? It's so that we would boast in the Lord. He did this so that we would proclaim Christ. Not just Christ crucified, but Christ risen in victory and Christ ascended to glory. So Paul's encouragement to us is that if we're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast about Jesus. Boast about what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. Because it seems to me that's the only kind of boasting that God approves of. So brothers and sisters, let's remember the message of the cross. Let's keep it in the forefront of our minds, the centrality of the cross It's what John Piper calls the blazing center of the glory of God. Let's remember that every good thing that we have received as believers in Christ was purchased and obtained for us by Jesus at the cross. And it's the greatest evidence of the love of God for his people in Christ Jesus. Let us remember also that we are a chosen people. Listen again to these words of the Apostle Peter. Words that I imagine are familiar to most of us, but that again, they're worth hearing again. Why don't you close your eyes for a minute? But you, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Wow. What great words. You're not here this morning because you're eloquent or clever or influential or well-connected. Maybe you are those things. But that isn't why God chose you. He chose you because he loved you. Before the world was created and before you had done anything, good or bad. It doesn't make any worldly sense, but that's the way it is. So can I encourage us, and I'm including me in that. Let's do what we were chosen and redeemed for. Let us declare his praises. Let us proclaim him. Let's speak of the wonderful things he has done, the wonderful things he's doing right now, and the wonderful things he's going to do. Because there is a world out there that needs to hear this message, this wonderful, this foolish and weak message of the cross, Love and mercy are available through Jesus and by his completed work at the cross. And we've got a little bit of time, so I'm going to invite us to respond in worship in a moment. But whilst uh, musicians are coming back, and I realise I have to wear another hat again in a minute, Uh, but as we're responding, there are two particular groups of people that I want to pray for. 
Now, there may be other things that you've heard this morning that you might want to respond to, and I would love to pray for you. But in particular, I have in mind two types of people. So firstly, I've spoken mainly this morning to people who have responded to the message of the cross, and they've placed their faith in Christ Jesus. And whilst I know many of you fairly well now, and I'd be confident that most of you would identify as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, nevertheless, I'm aware that it's possible, it is possible, to come along to church, maybe even for years, but never fully have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And I I don't know, there might be some people this morning that have never fully surrendered. I I don't know. I I only, really, all of us only ever know where we are at with Jesus. So I'm just going to put it out there. Or if you're listening to a recording and you want to respond to the gospel of Jesus, then get in touch with us through the website. And maybe you just want some assurance this morning. So you're here and you, and you know that you, you're, just, you're not quite sure where you stand. I would love to pray with you and, and kind of bring some reassurance there. But the other kind of people that I have in mind this morning are those that, I mean, maybe you even physically flinched when I said the words, not enough, because that's how you feel. Those words resonated with you. And I think there may be a few of us that are in that boat. So I'm going to ask, if that's you, I want you to be really brave. Because I, I, I am in this boat. So I want you to come down the front. I realize that's a big thing. But if, you've ha- if you want to be free of those curses, I would love to pray with you. Because it's not me that you're responding to. It's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's not me you're coming to. It's, it's Jesus. And, and I just want to pray with you because I know how that feels. So I would count that as a privilege. And I think that Jesus not only has power and authority to, re- to release us from darkness into his kingdom of light, but he has got power to break chains. He comes to proclaim freedom. So if, if that is like a curse over you, and you want to breathe free of it, will you come, will you let me pray with you?